Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for skipping the playoffs and coming down to meet two wonderful authors. Thank you, virtual audience. You'll be watching it whenever it's convenient for you. So um, I'm Barbara Peters from The Poison Pen, and to my elbow here is John Charles of our staff, who's actually going to conduct the conversation this afternoon. And over here from England um, is Kate Quinn, and I've just been asking her why, as a British author, she has had her two novels published here. It's two, right? Not three? Okay. In the United States, the last one was set in the Southwest and had a polygamy kind of a background, and this one is set up on the Pacific Northwest, and I thought was terrific. And I don't know if you're going to explore this, but as I understand it, your own issues with addiction had something to do with writing this story. Yeah. Right, you need your microphone, hon. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. So is this in the author note? I didn't dredge that up to embarrass Kate. It actually says that that's one <laughs> yeah, of the I'm reasons. Yeah, I'm quite open about it. It's okay. She's <laughs> not maybe awkward. That she wrote the book. <laughs> and interestingly enough, and sort of not quite on, on point, but I just read the advanced reading copy um, by an author who has an eating disorder. And so in the book, she explores anorexia and eating disorders and how those are treated. And I had no idea. Did you know the fatality rate for anorexia is the highest of all disorders? is some phenomenal amount. And the reason is that because the person is starving, their brain function is seriously affected, and then they don't recognize they're sick. So you can talk to us maybe about recognizing that you are yeah, addicted, yeah, absolutely. but your brain yeah. is keen. Or not recognizing, right. I think in my case, or not, yeah, right, for a long the time, case yeah. may be. And Alison Brennan um, is now and lives here in the Valley. And we're very happy to have her because when we first knew her, she was still out of state. It was in California, wasn't it? Yeah, right. But now she's here. And I really love this series that she is writing. But she's writing, you keep writing more than one book a year. Yes, I am. <laughs> right. Okay, so anyway, questions from Allison. Anyway, I'm delighted that they could both come today and talk to you about their books, and John, as ever, has penetrating and wonderful questions, so I'm going to hand this over. Thank you. Thank you both for being here. My first Thank question, you. because as a reader, I'm fascinated. No, it's just me. I used to work in a library. <laughs> so. You've come a long way, John. I don't know. That's about as loud as I can go. Um, my first question is always how you got to where you became a writer because you both were writing before you wrote novels. Allison, you were writing legislation, and Kate, you were writing journalism, travel articles. Tell us about yourself before the novels, and we'll start with you, Kate. Um, right, oh, it's a good, great question. Thank you. Um, so I started writing. I won a writing contest when I was six. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think even before that, I always knew I wanted to be a writer. I, uh, that those things they make you do in school, you know, what, what do you want to be? I, I distinctly remember drawing myself at, at a desk, writing and putting writer. Um, so it was always on my mind. I won this competition, obviously decided this, this was it. The, the bright lights of uh, publishing was for me. Um, but then I um, had a kind of, a, I guess, a crisis of confidence, I suppose. So I went into journalism. Um, I mean, also, I should say I was kind of, um, I was probably kind of unemployable because I did, I did an awful lot of jobs and it was very hard to keep my interest. I mean, similar to you, you also did a lot of, a lot of jobs. We were talking about this. Um, so, and then, and, but travel journalist, obviously, you know, con constant sort of stimulation. So I, so I did that for a bit, and th but that was obviously a way of, you know, keeping myself sort of in hand before developing the confidence to actually submit an actual real book. How about you? Yeah. Well, I didn't actually write the legislation. Please don't blame that on me. <laughs> um, but I did work in the California State Legislature, and one of the things that I did was uh, I helped all of the offices um, write constituent mail. So if uh, you wrote into your legislator, the chances were I actually touched that letter that you got back, if you lived in California, um, because I taught them how to use the computer system, how do you respond to constituents, what you need to say, why it's important to respond to constituents. Mm -hmm. And so I drafted that whole um, letter program for the California legislature. And that was fun. But I'd always actually, like Kate, I've always wanted to be a writer. I just 
never got serious about it until about 2001 after my son was born and I was beginning to hate my job and didn't want to go back after maternity leave. And I said, I'm going to finish one of these many books I'd started. I had literally started over 100 books and never finished one of them. Not until Luke was born, I said, I'm going to finish a book. Now that never sold, by the way. That was a really bad book. <laughs> yeah, I did the same. I wrote a really bad book. Why don't you tell us about the book that brought you here? And we'll start with you, Allison. Uh, the Missing Witness? Yeah. So The Missing Witness is the fifth book in my Quinn and Costa series. And I actually, it's a little bit, I hate to use the phrase ripped from the headlines, but in a sense, this really was. When I was um, trying to craft, because when you're writing a series, you want each book to stand alone. You don't want a reader who hasn't read the first book to come in and say, wait, I don't understand this. So I always try to find a new and interesting mystery to tie my continuing characters into. Um, with The Missing Witness, I um, knew that my main character, Kara, was going to go back to Los Angeles and testify against a human trafficker that she had arrested and put in jail and he was trying to get his case thrown out so she had to come and testify and I said well that in and of itself is kind of boring of a story and it's like I testify is he going to go to prison is he not so I decided that there had to be a more compelling reason for this entire um, case to have come about and I realized I had dropped hints in earlier books about what the real crime was and one of the things when you're having someone like David Chen, who had essentially had a sweatshop of Chinese laborers that he had brought over illegally to work for it in his factories, is there's a lot of people that had to have known. There's inspectors, there's government officials, there's local cops walking the beat. There were other people that knew. And then all of a sudden, I'm like in writing the book, and someone kills them on the street. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to stop and figure this out. And that was when I realized that there was a lot of graft and corruption in the government of Los Angeles, and it all centers around how they fund the housing, uh, the homeless housing crisis. And so that ended up becoming my book. What about you, Kate? Barbara touched upon it, but the clinic has some personal notes to it. Yeah, yeah, very much. I should say I I loved that bit of your. I was that the bit where he gets shot. I I, th I thought, can I give that away? Because that was a real kind of. Um, <laughs> I couldn't get this this book because I'm in the UK. I, so I only got it this morning. I'm already like a third through it. It's, it's that good. It's it's so good, and I I really enjoy the other book and, and the series as well. Um, so yeah, so I try and put my personal experiences into books as much as possible. So when I wrote Black Widows, which is a story about uh, a polygamous Latter-day Saint marriage with three wives, all very different personalities. Um, and one day the husband shows up brutally murdered and what, because of where they live, far out into nowhere, uh, has to have been one of the wives. So that was set on the fact that I grew up with very strong religion in the family on my mother's side of the family. Um, not Latter-day Saint, but it was a similar kind of, it was a... Uh, don't want to use the word sect, but, but a slightly more extreme version of an existing religion um, with many similarities. So um, I, when I came to this book, uh, I, I was actually stuck on a book. I was completely stuck on a book. And I, at that time, I had been, without realising, an alcoholic for basically all my life, essentially since I was 13 years old. There were many, many things that I had never done sober. Um, I think partly growing up in the UK where alcohol is very normalized and alcohol culture is very normalized, I did not for a very long time ever thought I think I had a problem at all. Um, and I think I would do things like I would deliberately seek out company that would reflect, you know, so I would maybe hang out with people who drank more than me, that kind of thing. I would make those choices. Un, you know, unbeknownst, I wasn't doing this deliberately, but that was a lot of what was going on. Um, I had my two kids um, with my partner, who I, I love dearly. I did not drink during my pregnancy, but I psychologically was still addicted to alcohol because I was still, as I later discovered, um, using alcohol to dumb down and ignore the uncomfortable feelings that had haunted me since my childhood. Um, and I was really just waiting for the pregnancy to be over so I could you know, continue, continue that process. Um, 
And I also felt that I used alcohol for my books. I felt it was essential to my uh, ability as an author that I went to some very deep emotional places and that I needed alcohol to almost get me through that um, and to sort of channel those hard emotions. So um, the time came uh, when my kids were getting older and I did not want to see my kids to see me drinking alcohol. Um, so I would be drinking in the evening. Their bedtimes were getting later and I would be shuffling them into bed because I didn't want them to see me with a glass of wine or whatever. Um, my father was an alcoholic, so I did not want my kids to ever see what I saw. Sorry, I'm starting to get emotional about this. Um, and, then I, and then I realized um, that I, I couldn't stop. So I was actually drinking, so then I was drinking wine um, for a, a short amount of time when my kids were, were around. I mean, wine or bit, it doesn't really matter, but I, was, I, ha I, d I never wanted my children to see their mum with alcohol in her hand, like it was a good thing, like it was okay. Um, so I remember having this moment where I realized I couldn't stop, um, and, I, and I really thought I was just gonna have to just sort of die. You know, that was kind of, kind of my thought process, like, oh, I'm just gonna, you know, I'll just, I'll just die young. <laughs> um, and then I think shortly within a few days of that, um, I should I should add I am a very emotional person so please <laughs> so, so uh, don't don't let it trouble you, um, and then I think within a few days of that I I then decided okay I am I need more help than I have been ma making available to myself, and I um, checked myself into rehab which in the UK I mean I, it was, I think it's similar here but I, I put it on a credit card you know, it was very expensive, I was incredibly frightened that I was never going to write again. Um, and and in my like I'm in my family like I earn a lot of the money in our family. It wasn't like oh I just won't write and then my husband will pay the bills. It really wasn't like that. It was that was my entire income. Um, so so yeah, it was incredibly frightening. And then the first um, week in or probably three four days in rehab was were an incredibly frightening and unnerving experience because it's quite medical for the first few days they have to really monitor you and you're in like a medical um area uh and there's a lot of noises from the kind of other people detoxing and that's really really scary um and then when you get out of that section and you meet your group and you start talking to people and you meet amazing people um and you realize that guy screaming in the hallway or oh, that was just dave <laughs> you know actually he's he's okay you know he's just in pain um and and yeah, so I, I'm, I don't want to talk too much about it because I'm aware that I, there's, there's two of us here, but that, that was, you know, a lot of my encounter, a lot of the things that happened in rehab, I couldn't talk about really afterwards because um, it would compromise the an anonymity of the people I was in with. Um, and s a lot of those experiences were personal to people in my family in a way that I didn't want to be disloyal. So I kind of put them in, in here, <laughs> was, was the way I did it. But I hope in a way that... Might no one else would know yeah. <laughs> who it was. Um, setting is very important to the book too. Mm -hmm. How do you decide this is where I want the book set? Like in this case, the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, that, that's a good question. Well, I feel like we we both. I mean, both of us make setting a a thing, right? So, um, in this case, the house that I, the rehab I went to, was a very cre was actually a quite a creepy old Gothic. In it was set, it was in England, a, an English house with lots of carved wood. I was not thinking at the time, take notes. <laughs> I kind of wish I had been, but maybe I would have stuffed it with too much detail. Um, and I did want it based in America, and Barbara mentioned this. Uh, you know, I wrote a book, so my first book, Black Widows, was set in America. It just had to be by the story of um, the Latter-day Saints. We, we really don't have that in England at all, um, very minorly. Uh, the second book I wrote, I wrote in was based in Australia, based on my experience of being a barmaid in Australia behind a, a uh, in a really rough outback bar. And my American publisher told me that they could not publish it because it was set in Australia. <laughs> so I thought, I'm not going to make that mistake again. <laughs> and also, as an English, as, as a Brit, I just, I absolutely love being in America. I love everything about America. Um, I completely freak out about spending dollars and like, just everything. Like, I, it's so glamorous to me. Um, so uh, there was that aspect that I wanted to be immersed in. Uh, and the Northwest, I mean, look at, look at this, you know, like, isn't that? And fun story, this house, I did base it on this house, um, which is Eureka in um, nearish Seattle, Northwest. And 
um, never told anyone. And then the, the cover designer used that, like the hat. And I was like, how did you know? Like, how did, because there's a, I mean, there's not loads of houses like that, but there's only probably 10 or something. So, yeah. But let's, I feel like we should talk about your, <laughs> let's talk about well, your I books. Your <laughs> I love your cover. It's a great cover. It's a cover. great cover. I love that cover too. Allison, if I understand correctly, your Quinn and Costa series, uh, Kara Quinn almost didn't make it past book one. What made you change your mind? Um, that's actually true. I originally wrote the book where she was just going to be kind of the catalyst character. And I had originally envisioned it, and it still is an ensemble cast. You know, I have my ensemble cast of characters. I have my, you know, Matt Costa who's in charge. I have all the other FBI agents. She was basically the catalyst uh, for the story in the first book. And I figured down the road, maybe she would come back as a potential love interest, but I wasn't writing these as romantic suspense. But when I got to the end of the book, I loved her. And I just thought, this is the kind of character I want to write about. There's so much I don't know about her. And so I said, okay, I got to figure out a way to keep her in part of the series. And I think w what I had done is I didn't even have the very last chapter was completely different when I first wrote the book. And so I turned it into my editor and we were talking about it. She says, well, yeah, she has to be in the second book. I said, oh, I got to figure out a plausible way. And that's kind of where at the end of the first book, um, she finds out her partner had been killed and she couldn't go back to Los Angeles um, because the David Chen was, had put out a hit on her. So they loaned her to the FBI. And at least I got a reprieve. I said, okay, now I can figure out how I'm going to resolve that later. <laughs> I could write a bunch of books before then. So that's kind of how she ended up sticking around. And then The Missing Witness actually resolves that conflict from the first book. Um, I don't think you need to read all of the books in order, but there is a little bit of a connection between the first book and this one, at least in terms of Kara's story. A lot of readers don't realize that novelists can't make everything up. You have to sometimes rely on research. <laughs> so I'd like you both to talk a little bit about what research was involved in writing your novels. Um, we'll start with you, Allison, because I believe your FBI mobile response team is based on a real thing. Um, yeah, so when I uh, went through the FBI Citizens Academy in Sacramento, um, they have what's called the evidence response team. And I learned about it because the evidence response team investigated the Carrie Stainer murders. Remember up in the Yosemite, the Yosemite murders? They actually go on scene. There, it's a special unit of the FBI. They pull them from the Sacramento FBI. Everybody has a specialty to go and investigate these really complex crimes in the area. And I love the concept. So I took it and decided to make it national. And that became my mobile response team. Um, to me, research is really important. There is not a national mobile response team like there is in every regional office, but it is close enough to the real entity that I figure, okay, well, you know what? Willing suspension of disbelief. For this particular book, I did a lot of research into the homeless crisis, how um, governments fund homeless um, housing, how non-governmental organizations get paid, what is the accountability? What is, and I interviewed a social worker who works, has worked with the homeless for the last 30 years to get his take on it. Actually modeled my character, Will Latimer, in the book, who runs a similar organization after Kevin, who I had interviewed, because there were some things that I wanted an expert to say that I couldn't just say as, you know, the author, you know, I'm not gonna like stand over here and like da 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 da. So I had Will as a character in the book saying things that I felt were important to advance the story so that readers can understand what um, my characters were facing in the book. What about you, Kate? How do you know when to make things up and when to draw from reality? Oh, it's such a good question. Um, and uh, can I say, I cannot believe that you didn't have Kara as the as the main. I can't. I, I, there's no way reading that book I would have ever thought she was not designed to be the front. Okay, <laughs> mind blown. Um, Research, yeah. So I, 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 lo I love doing research because I used to do um, travel journalism, and I love that. And this is like the way of bringing those two things together. So I, I like doing really weird travel experiences. Like I did, I, I mean, I did some sort of luxury type stuff, but mainly I would be like, you know, oh, this is somewhere where they do like crab racing, or I'm going to go to that restaurant and eat like dog, or like, like really, really weird stuff, right? Um, so, so for my books, any chance to do anything a little bit strange um, or mildly uncomfortable 
I'm I'm all I'm all for. I, I was just I was just saying um, to Alison. I, I've just done a spate of staying with nuns in like different um, different convents, which was so, which was so interesting. It was so interesting. Uh, I loved it, and I lo I loved those women. Um, I will say, not cooks. Um, that that's the only thing I will say because I, I didn't quite realize like with the thing of the vow of poverty I didn't quite understand that that uh, that does mean that you can only have handouts so actually so I, probably I should say amazing cooks because they only have literally what they're given and a lot of what they're given in the UK is cans of beans but no like <laughs> like no condiments yeah yeah so they have to make do what they um, yeah, so that's that's how I approach research. But when do I make things up? I mean, I think things just come to you in the... We were actually talking at lunch about how um, readers will often like the things most, will often comment on your research about the things that you've made up. <laughs> and it's and it <laughs> feels slightly like whether or not... Should I tell them that that was actually not the product? But I also think that if you do a lot of research, the ideas you get will be in line with what you have researched and like Alison will like go into a morgue <laughs> an actual morgue yeah, yeah. so I think so she, so the things that might you know happen in the morgue that you might imagine later would be you know in the context of she had been to that morgue yeah, we, were, <laughs> yeah. we were talking about my morgue trip because yeah. I, I wanted to go and witness an autopsy and as you do and so I did yeah <laughs> yeah Kate, if I remember correctly, you actually did have or still have a blog about eating scary food. You mentioned that. Yeah, I do. I've eaten so much. Weird. You know, the funniest thing, I was the fussiest, the fussiest kid. Like, I was so fussy. I was kind of starved because I think my parents didn't realize. They, they kind of took the, the thing that if they, the kids won't starve themselves. And, you know, sorry, mum, dad, but they, they kind of did. Uh, me and my sister, we would honestly, we would eat like hamster food. We would eat paper. We were so hungry all the time. Um, but weirdly now, we, <laughs> we will eat anything. And I've done this like weird, yes, yeah, so I've done this weird food blog, which I've not updated recently because, um, well, I haven't been anywhere. There's no, there's not weird enough food in America. <laughs> sorry, guys. It's all too normal and delicious. Um, so yes, so some of the things I've eaten, scorpion, scorpion was really delicious. Scorpion was genuinely delicious. Dog, not so much. Would not recommend dog. It, it was so bad. It was so bad, I actually was almost like, I came out a day later, almost like, I kind of don't want to eat any kind of meat ever again. Yeah, it was, it was almost like traumatic. Because we went to the restaurant, me and some friends. They brought us out different varieties of dog, like cold cuts, dog stew something else and we ate let's say the cold cuts which are kind of liver tasting not too bad and then the stew I took a big mouthful of the stew and my friends were there and they were like how is it and it was so disgusting and I was so trying not to be sick that I couldn't make any reply so they all thought it was okay and they dug in too right um I feel badly about this now you know looking back I, I feel like I should not have eaten the dog it was karma that was in Vietnam and then we, and then when we had not finished the dog, they were like, "Oh, we need to pack it up for you." So we felt we had to take it with us so as not to be impolite. And then we were like, "What do we do with this dog? Like, can we leave it in the taxi?" And then my friend was like, "Well, we, we don't want the guy to have like just dog like around." And then he was like, "That's something I never thought I would say out loud." <laughs> it was a kind of bizarre on every level. So, so yeah, the dog, the dog thing, no. But the scorpion, yes. You both write books that could be labeled suspense thrillers. As a broad term, what do you think are the key elements you need to include for your thriller, your suspense novel, to be successful? I'll let you. Well, I think for any thriller, um, it, it's a really about pacing. I mean, pacing and characters. I mean, every book is about character. But in a thriller, I think what the most important thing is you have to keep the reader turning the pages. You have to either introduce new elements, have, you know, I don't, I'm not really big into the cliffhangers, but, you know, you want to at least, there was a book I read a long time ago, and I did not, a writing book, and I don't remember who it was, so I apologize for that, but it was something that you want to answer a question for the reader, so the reader's going, ah, I see, and then ask two more questions, so the reader goes, oh, I need to find the answers to that, so they want to keep turning the pages to find out what's going to happen next. And that's really all it is, is about pacing. And I will say one of my fatal flaws as a writer is I tend to be very repetitive and I tend and, and on the page and I try to edit it out. And it's sometimes hard because you're thinking, oh, but 
this sounds the way I said it here sounds so much better. So which one do I cut? <laughs> and so it's it is a that's part of the editing process because you don't want to bore the reader. That's you know that's the kiss of death for a thriller. So that's probably what I would say. Yeah, and I think you do that really really well. I I mean the say so I think I it took me a couple books to learn that character is is so important because I always enjoyed the plot and the intricacies and then I kind of realized it doesn't matter you can have the best plot in the whole world but if you don't care who it's happening to it, it, it like no one's interested so I learned that that was really important um, and then similarly to you like to always have something that someone is going after so you've always got the readers always waiting for something um, to happen uh, is, is, is the other thing and, and so the page turning thing well, I noticed in the clinic that your, your chapters are very short and to the point. Sort of like the James Patterson idea is like you want to have yeah. like the short chapters so that you constantly say, oh, what's going to happen next? And then you go into a different point of view. So you're kind of constantly trying to, oh, this is happening now. Oh, and this is happening at the same time. So it's nice back and forth between the short. Yeah. Chapters. And I keep and I keep uh, I've got like almost a word count in mind, actually, that I will never go over. Pretty much. I try and keep them a certain length, and there's a matter. If it's over that, it's like, okay, that's going to be two then, because, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's better than me. I don't look at work out. <laughs> what does your writing process look like when you start a book? Um, I would guess, and I'm often wrong, that when you're writing a mystery or a suspense novel, you need to know how it's going to play out. But some writers just start and figure they'll figure it out at the end. So how do you approach your books? Oh, that's me. I, I have no idea what's going to happen. <laughs> I, I literally, um, I, I did not know that David Chen was going to die. He dies really early in the book. I'm not giving anything away. I didn't know he was going to die until he was shot. I'm like, going, oh my gosh, this is so good. I have to figure out what's going to happen. And I mean, I had the rough idea of the story. I mean, I kind of knew the direction of the story. And I, because I write mysteries, I knew I was going to solve the crime. But until he was killed, I think I didn't really know the direction that the book was going to go. So for me, it's like I have an overview of the story. You know, obviously I write mysteries. I'm going to solve the mystery. My main characters are going to survive. I'm not going to, you know, kill off Kara. You know, other people might die, but she won't. Um, but for me, it's the, the journey is the fun part. Because if I mess something up at the beginning, once I get to the end, I can always go back and fix it. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know if this is similar or not, but I... In the beginning, I would write the whole book, kind of knowing how it would end. And then I would get to the end, and then I would realize that now I'm in the scene. There's no way that could ever happen. It feels unrealistic when you're actually faced with that reality. So now I, I normally have a rough idea of how it's going to end, but not really. And then normally during the writing, I'll come up with like some like cool idea will pop into my head, and that will normally take... Then that becomes the ending, and the kind of idea I had in my head drops away. Um, and I try and leave myself room at the beginning now. So I write the beginning, then I go to the end, write the end, um, and then I come back and put anything in the beginning that needs to be and then try and kind of weave it through. Yeah, because I felt like it, if I write the beginning, it, you kind of get yourself all into knots. It kind of feels very tight. And then you can't get back in there without kind of adding loads of stuff, which feels boring and, and makes your chapters longer than the, <laughs> <laughs> the designated word count, which I must stick to. Um, so that's probably a bit similar. I think I do not write the end first. <laughs> you know, I, I'm very linear. I have to, I write beginning to end, but then I do a lot of rewriting once I get there. Did your training as a journalist, Kate, help you when you came time to write novels or was it a hurdle you had to overcome? Oh, I love the question. Um, what, in terms of the writing or the... Because journalists have deadlines. They can't wait for the muse to come and... Yeah, I, you know what? I, I, find I really like a deadline. I'm, I'm a deadline sort of person. It kind of like bothers me with publishers where I'm like, well, you want it in on this day, right? And they're like, ah, it could be next week. And I'm like, no, no, <laughs> tell me the day. Tell me the hour. <laughs> I will have it with you. Um, because in journalism, like essentially that deadline, that's the only thing you can definitely be sure you're going to get right, right? If you're freelance and your livelihood depends on it. It's like, well, the one thing I know I can do and know, you know is, is get it in on time. Um, the writing, I mean, I think it probably helped me uh, because I was used to turning out an awful lot of words. Mm -hmm. So I think that was probably helpful. And I probably typed faster. I don't know. <laughs> probably helped. What's your approach to editorial um, from your publisher? Do you welcome it? Is it something you dread? Um, 
I would also think working in journalism, Kate, that you're used to being edited, so it doesn't bother, but I could be wrong. Yeah, no, you're, you're right. I, I am used to being edited. With journalism, I, I did not like it because it essentially just felt like another step, uh, an extra piece of unpaid work that I was doing because you're turning out pieces for like a certain amount. Um, but with but with the books, I love it because I, because I always want to get out the best possible possible book, um, and the definitely the main editing. I'm like, yeah, absolutely, tell me everything, and and I feel like I'm able to differentiate. Like I feel like I'm able to say, uh, perhaps not, but I don't think that's ever happened. You know, so maybe I'm not able to differentiate. Um, the copy ed the copy edit is never so much fun, right? The copy <laughs> edit's always just a bit like, oh, okay, you know, just it's something to get through. But some people do love that. Not we me. don't love that. No. <laughs> yeah. we, we were talking about the copy editor. Yeah. That it's like a chore because, first of all, the copy editor reminds you that you don't know everything about grammar. Yeah. I was like a straight yeah. A student, but it's like, wow, I oh, really no. did. I might not have been as smart as I thought I was. Yeah. But it does. It feels like a job. Whereas the editing process, when you're working with an editor, um, that's more like, hey, you know, maybe you can expand on this, or this doesn't make sense, and the editor will make your book a stronger story. And that's what you want. You yeah. want to have the best story possible. So for me, I love editorial. And in fact, when I um, left one publisher and we, my agent was looking for another publisher, I said, the only thing I care about is an editor who edits. I just want an editor who wants to spend the time helping me make my book as strong as possible. Because some don't, right? I, like yeah. I've had a mix of editors and some will literally give you almost like a copy edit level and then just... And yeah, no, but I wanted an editor who edits. Yeah, I, but you know, I have a I have a twin sister who also writes books. Um, who's she's the best? She's amazing. I love her books. But she also edits for me, so she does the first read, which is really useful because it's like having another version of you that's like rested. Um, but she um, recently got a, like this new job um, editing where she's really really happy. And the last book she read of mine, she was like, "Oh, this is amazing! Like, you know, not really any amends." And I was like, "Oh." great you know because she's very hard to please and I sent it off to my publisher and they like ripped it apart and I was like damn we need to we need to keep her unhappy <laughs> so she can like <laughs> give me the good amends that she used to give me and like save me from that pain later and down the line <laughs> I am happy for her <laughs> I didn't realize this until today Kate that you actually have written historical fiction is that it or historical mysteries or I, yeah, I have. And you know what? When I first started writing um, fiction, I had very, very low self-confidence. And part of it was to do with the fact there is a lot of class um, hierarchy in England. And publishing is very much the upper echelons of class. And I was very much not in that. So at that time, we, that, was, so that would have been long enough ago that you would literally send a physical manuscript and it was the kind of thing that you wouldn't get published because somebody who'd been to a good school would notice that you hadn't set it out in the right you know they'd literally just dismiss you because you didn't know like the codes of that world so I was um really worried about that very like low confidence in my ability to like get through that weird bottleneck right of like this tiny like percentage of the population who then decide what everybody reads who would never ever publish Fifty Shades of Grey in a million years um but really loved it when it did very well. Uh, <laughs> so um, I deliberately decided I had a degree in history and I thought, you know what, this could give me an in. So it sort of was a bit of a commercial. I mean, I did love it. I loved doing historical fiction, but I also felt that would be a niche I could have more of a chance of like getting published in. So it was a bit tactical. Um, what have you both learned that surprised you the most? You've been published for a number of years. What about the business of publishing surprised you the most? And your editor is probably listening, so. <laughs> yeah. No, I think for, for me, what I don't know if it was necessarily being surprised by the business. It's more of I... I think I believed when I first got started that once I figured it out, once I finished a book, got to the end, wrote another book, that it would just become easier, mm -hmm. that I would have, you know, ideas I don't like. I have plenty of ideas, but I just thought, oh, every book is going to be easier, mm -hmm. and it hasn't been. And it's, I, I think that actually is, I write better books today, but Back when I first started, my first book came out in 2006, I didn't realize I wasn't writing great books. Now I kind of see the flaws 
and I panic. I'm going, oh my gosh, this is awful. And then I can't, I can't write as fast as I used to. Before, I was so ignorant. I'm like, oh, this sounds so great. And then I would go back and edit it, and I didn't realize that that whole process, you know, that was part of the process. Now I see it. So when I finish a book, it's actually much cleaner than my first books, but I just really thought it would just be easier, and it really isn't. Every book is, a, is probably a little harder than the last. Yeah, so I, ma I massively second that very distressing reality. It's so, it's so true, because I think you learn more with every book, so your every book feels harder, and you also know what edits have come back, and you're like, oh yeah, I remember I did this with the last one, so I won't do this with this one. Um, but I kind of feel like I want to give you some kind of insider, like publishing something, <laughs> because you asked the question. Um, I mean, foreign rights, that's, a, that's quite an interesting... So things like foreign rights and film options. So I didn't realise, because I... Um, started self-publishing books. Um, I, the first, I think, 12 books I wrote were self-published before I was published. Mm. And uh, so, and I made uh, like a ton of money doing that. And, and I didn't realize what, because in, in comparison, the publishing deal didn't seem so attractive. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess I was surprised to learn that you get kind of like these chunks of money for like, they just sort of arrive. Like, oh, France has bought your book or like, there's this is the, yeah like or like it's an option for film and you get this chunk of money so are you popular in certain countries or do you find that I think like France um, here like like there was another one um, Holland I think they really like Black Widows um, and then uh, weirdly for my historical fiction Slovenia I'm really big in Slovenia <laughs> for for my historical fiction it's a pretty small country but in that like small country i'm number one i'm <laughs> doing pretty well yeah <laughs> as well as you can do in slovenia thanks slovenia love you <laughs> um you both write now suspense thrillers but what about you as readers do you read what you write do you read all over the map who are some of the authors that have influenced you um allison if i remember correctly the stand played a important role in your yeah i you know Back when I was a kid, I get very jealous of my daughter over there. She gets all these great YA books. There was no YA. We went basically, we went from Judy Bloom to Stephen King. I mean, that, there was really That's nothing in between. Well, I think I did more of the darker Stephen King than Jackie Collins. <laughs> but um, So I did love The Stand, and I read it when I was 13 because I didn't have the YA. <laughs> um, but I say today, um, Lisa Gardner is probably one of my favorite authors. And I do read suspense mysteries. Robert Crace, I absolutely love the um, Elvis Cole, Joe Pike series. I read J.D. Robb. I read, I mean, I read pretty widely. But I will say that I've started to try to branch out just a little bit because when you just read mystery thrillers every once in a while, you need a little bit of a break. So there's been a couple what I would call more um, uh, lighter mysteries that I've been reading. There was one, um, Finley Donovan. Yeah, I, she's coming. Yeah. Oh, shit. Oh, that was such I literally I was listening to it. I laughed out loud. It was hilarious. She's a she's a writer with two small kids going through a divorce. And I'm like, going, oh, my gosh, this is I, I couldn't believe I I don't think I've laughed out loud in a book mm -hmm. for a long time. So I then read all of her other books because it, I appreciated that. So now I've decided that every like maybe fourth or fifth book, I'll do something a little lighter. What about you, Kate? Uh, yeah, so um, as well as being a, like a former alcoholic, I'm also like a bookaholic. <laughs> so I will read <laughs> like literary fiction, like uh, some horror, like crime, mystery, sci-fi. Like I love it all. Um, like I will read books of shampoo bottles in the bath if, I'm <laughs> if I get stuck or leaflets or brochures or whatever, or the flight instructions on the back of the seat. Um, so, uh, and I also have a member of a book group, and they are very literary. Um, so that's that's quite good because it kind of all keeps that kind of rolling. That I'm, they'll kind of do the work for me and look for. They're very aware of who is winning the prizes and who is you know big in the newspapers, which which I am not actually because I'm too busy <laughs> writing the books. Um, so that's a really useful. So I get a kind of regular injection of these like amazing literary books. I think we, before we run out of time, let's see if we have any questions from those in the audience. Have you ever had any major options? 
Yeah, yeah, like all my I, yeah, they they've been optioned. Like um, Black Widows was optioned a couple of times actually. It was um, well, I I'm, I'm not going to go into the long stories of but. <laughs> There's some funny stories there, but uh, I'll leave it at that. Uh, but yeah, so I, I, I need to remember because it's, it's now with a big studio and I can't remember what they're called, but they were the ones who did Gossip Girl. They currently have Black, Wid Black Widows. And then Blood Sisters, which is my next book in Australia, that is with another big company that I can't remember that did some big thing. Uh, this one, this one, I'm guessing not yet, because <laughs> um, I think, uh, yeah, it hopefully, hopefully pending. But I, I kind of always have half a mind... Because my historical thrillers, um, people were always saying, my agent was always saying, well, we can't, like, the stories are really good. They love the story, but we can't option them because they're too expensive to, like, make as movies. So when, because it's, like, incredibly, maybe not so much now. And actually, one of them is, one of the historical ones has been optioned, I think. But, um, I, I, so when I wrote Black Widows, like, a little bit on my mind was, I'm going to write a book that is, like, the cheapest ever thing to produce a movie so it's just like a house in the middle of the desert which could be LA movie producers could be anywhere um so that was a little bit like um, make it cheap I've sort of forgotten that now although this would be cheap I think nope not yet they are always looking but it's it's a it's just a weird business uh, I'll, I'll, a little funny story so the Quinn and Costa series because like I said the mobile response team isn't a real FBI group, but it's based on a real FBI unit. Um, apparently, my film agent loved the book and really wanted to sell it, but the thing was, oh, but that doesn't exist. Yeah. And I'm like, well, you know what? The BAU mm -hmm. exists, but they don't have a private jet and they don't fly all over the country oh solving God, crime. Are you serious? What well, a born identity? Like, that doesn't... I'm no, pretty don't. sure they that didn't happen. They they would will do, do profiles, but they do it from the you know, Washington, D.C. And I know this because I toured the FBI and I talked to the head of the BAU and I know that they don't have a private jet. It was something that John Douglas, he might have spoken here before, always wanted when he started the BAU unit. In, um, Could you Washington. not just have told them that it does exist? So, yeah, they, they exist. It's all very hush-hush. I can't tell you about it. I can't lie. I never. I, I have a real problem with lying for some reason. I... I uh, so my husband, it's a good thing. It's a good I thing. took my I had a like a surprise birthday party for my husband, and um, at a at a bar, and I couldn't even I had to like really have a movie we were going to see because I couldn't lie and say oh yeah we're going to this movie at such and such a time I had to make sure it was playing at that time before we oh let's we have time to stop by the bar and get a drink and then all this you didn't actually meet like buy buy tickets or <laughs> I almost, almost did I probably would have if I thought about it just oh here's the tickets. <laughs> Oh, I asked. Actually, um, you know, uh, Brenda Novak, who has come here before, she and I are both from Sacramento, and we had been talking, and she said, hey, I, I think I might have a contact at the Sacramento morgue. I'll let you know. And then she calls me up and says, yeah, we can go see an autopsy. So I said, oh, great. So we went to go see the autopsy together. Um, Brenda, she hates it when I tell the story. She actually fainted. But, um, but I still tell the story because it's <laughs> such a great story. But it was, it was actually a John Doe. He was a homeless man in Sacramento. He'd been stabbed to death. And it was a, they finally found the killers. It was teenage thrill killers. But so we actually witnessed his autopsy. And then I asked the pathologist, the head of the whole unit, I said, when you get a floater, will you call me? Because I'd like to see it. Because I was writing a book where I had to pull a body out of the river. And I said, I have a couple of months before this book is due. So would you let me know? And he did. And so I went back to go, and then we went through the whole thing about the biology and how they have to keep them in a special room and how they protect it because of all of the potential contamination. So it was very interesting. Mm. I would love to have done that with the I always have that problem with drowned victims. It's very hard to picture. Are they going to ask you to stop coming? Now? Are they like, <laughs> <laughs> are they, uh, no, 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 Alan, no more, no more visits now. We have this lady. <laughs> I think we have a question. I mean, I'm not, I don't think I'm very good with social media. I, I kind of try, like I, 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 I like to post up to things and I really like to connect with readers. Um, 
but I'm like not the sort of person who like puts on makeup and does my hair routinely. <laughs> but I save a lot of time that way. I, I just want to say this. So um, I'm not generally photo ready anyway. Uh, and I'm a, ter a horrible photographer. I, like I just don't get it. Um, but 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 I do. But I really like to connect with fans. And I, and I like when I'm on trips like this to kind of post where I am and get the travel stuff. So I'd say like say like medium. You know, like I'm. What about you? Yeah, I have the same. I. Social media is a great way to keep in contact with readers. I get, I used to get lots of email through my webpage. I get far more messages through Facebook because that's how people want to communicate. So I'm out there. I don't do a lot. I try to post every day. I try to keep my readers informed of my books. I'll post about my cats. I'll post about my kids, my grandson, because I have a six-month-old grandson now. Um, you know, so I'll, you know, I'll try to just be engaged because it's fun, you know, and I do like talking to people, but I don't go overboard. I don't do TikTok. I don't do like book videos. I will just post about my book. I think, you know, reviewers, if I get a good review, I might post that. I, lots of cat pictures again. And, yeah, you know, Right, yeah. Well, and I think it, it is a social media is has pros and cons just like everything. Um, you know, I, I have my issues with it with young people sometimes, but I think it's a great way for people to make connections over common likes and interests. Yeah. So if you have a book group or you have something, you know, it's a way to keep people together. Um, so I do think that there's a lot of positive. Any other questions? One from. So, have you guys ever attended a book club in person? Because I hear mixed reviews. I have, and I'm not sure. Like, I w I was. People ask me to come, and I say yes, and I've done ones on Zoom, like not in, not actually physically in person, but on Zoom, but but in person, right? Um, and I always kind of want to say yes and be amenable, but at the same time, I'm always a bit like, "Are you sure you want me there, guys?" Because if you, you know, if you want to, because a book group is often a lively debate about a book, and that kind of is going to be difficult to do if the author is there. Um, and so, so yes, yeah, so I, I do do them, but I, w I wouldn't recommend people seek out authors to come to their book groups because I think it would just make it awkward, awkward right? I've gone to a couple book groups. They're they're fun, usually local. When I was in Sacramento, I went to a lot of them because I was a local author. And if somebody invited me and they were, basically, if it was within a 45-minute drive, I would go. Um, usually, they just want you to come and kind of speak. And they may have read your books or may not have read your books. And, you know, it's just a, making connections with people. Usually, like libraries and stuff, I used to do a lot of things. and um, Or like a... Um, Oh, gosh, I can't. The name just escaped my mind. I did do one in Scottsdale with a, it was just a, a social group that just wanted an author to come in and speak. You know, so you just find those kind of connections and I'll go. Then you, you got into anything. morgues. That was the thing, wasn't it? Like, this is the lady, the morgue visitor. Yeah, this is get her along. It was fun. <laughs> Any last questions? No? Before... I wouldn't care if I did because everything in there, I actually did a lot of research. So if you read the acknowledgments at the end of the book, I say where I got all my information. Right, I already read that. <laughs> so that, no, I, I mean, if people want to complain about where I got, you know what, they, they can say whatever they want. They could have their own review. I, most of the reviews have been very positive about this book, which kind of, I was a little nervous because I don't write politics. This is, and I don't even think this is political, but it's probably the most social issue. Yeah, it's a, it is a definitely a social issue that I don't generally touch upon 
but I thought it was extremely important, especially in this day and age, to realize how much waste has gone on, especially in California, which is what I knew a, a lot about. So I did a lot of research and I interviewed a lot of people to make sure that I was getting it right. So when I say there is no accountability when the government gives nonprofits money to solve, you know, to house the homeless, there is no accountability. They don't have to show where they spent their money. All they have to do is file the tax forms and the appropriate nonprofit forms because there's no agreement. Oh, we're gonna give you this, you're gonna give us this report to tell me how many people you housed or how many people you got into rehab. And the law in the, that I deal with in the book is also true. In 2016, California passed a law that if you receive state money in a rehab facility, it cannot be a sober facility. You cannot prevent people from using in the facility. So you're basically just going there for counseling. So a lot of people will leave them because they can't, if you're an addict, you can't be around other drugs. Because it, especially at that critical beginning, it's like if people were drinking around you, you probably would have said, oh, well, you know what, pour me a glass of wine. Yeah, yeah. How can you, sure. when you're physically addicted, you, you don't need to see that. And so that was, that's an actual law in California. I was stunned. I actually had to go back and read the legislation because I didn't believe it. I read it first in an LA Times article and I said, that cannot possibly be true. So I looked up the bill that was cited and because I did work in the legislature, I understand how legislation, how to read it. And I'm like, going, oh my gosh, it is true. And that was kind of, it was a little tipping point for me. Yeah, that was something I didn't have looked into in my book too, actually, with yeah. the the corruption. Because I didn't realize, like going into rehab, I, I like I had had lots of jobs, so I kind of felt like I knew about things like kickback systems and stuff. So I could sort of felt like I could tell when that was kind of being done to me, if that makes sense. So when people were kind of upselling things, um, and then I looked into it a lot more when I left. And yeah, because it's such a big business and it's such a huge amount of money. There's a massive amount of potential for corruption and fraud, for sure, because any family would give every last, like, penny, dime, whatever, to, like, rescue a, a, some, a kid who needed to go to rehab, right? They would pay any amount. So, um, and they don't necessarily know what goes on behind closed doors. So, yeah, that's the, the thing. Before we end, do you want to tell us or not about what's coming next from you as an author? Well, I have um, my first book in my Phoenix set series, which I'm really excited about, comes out in June. It's about a family of private investigators. It's set in Sunny Slope, and um, I'm really excited about it. It's called You'll Never Find Me. Uh, so that comes out in June. That's going to be a mass market original. And then my next Quinn and Costa, which does not have a title yet, we're going back and forth on the titles. I'm calling it Havenwood, but apparently that's not suspenseful enough. So I don't know what's gonna, what it's going to be called. Um, will be out next January, a year from the release of the missing witness. So, um, so I've got, I've got a couple. So I am working on one which is sat in a convent, as the staying with nuns would. Um, and I'm also doing. I've just finished one which is to do with a socialite heiress of a nightclub empire who's getting married she has um, a crazy stalker and c leading up to her wedding day the stalker starts killing her bridesmaids <laughs> so um and as we move into the book we realize that actually one of the bridesmaids um is the stalker <laughs> but we don't know who probably we hope yeah. we that sounds great i'd like to thank everyone who joined us today virtually and in person and thank our authors Allison Brennan and Kate Quinn for taking time and to share with us. Well, thank you for having us. So much for having us. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. A hundred percent of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.